Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today we're going to be talking about a new documentary called Phantom Parrot. It addresses the issue of a torture survivor and someone who supported him and tried to bring his plight to public's attention. It's a horrific story about injustice, about surveillance and about the digital age. Enjoy! Phantom Parrot, it's, I mean, the title, if nothing else, is, is gripping. I, I've, I've read the blurb, so I could sort of guess what it's about. And we've spoken before about your plight when you went to France last time. So tell me a little bit about Phantom Parrot. Why the name? And uh, you've been screened several times, and I understand you still have some screenings, especially in Europe. So, uh, so tell me a little bit about Phantom Parrot. Yeah, Bismillah. Um, so Phantom Parrot, the name is actually taken from a uh, document, official document of the UK government. It refers to a secret program. Um, it came to light as part of the revelations um, that Edward Snowden um, published through a couple of journalists. So it turned out that the UK government has been operating and still is operating a, a, a secretive program of collecting intelligence on British citizens. So, and the specific area that it operates in is borders, airports, seaports, um, anyone who's arriving or departing from the UK. And the goal of this program is to collect mass intelligence, as much information as possible, particularly um, electronic intelligence, uh, meaning data that is contained in people's phones or devices, laptops and so on, and to you know, sort of hoover it all up, um, put it in some databases, and then um, share it with partners. Now, the partners are most definitely the US uh, and most likely also the Five Eyes uh, nations, which includes Canada, New Zealand, um, Australia. Um, so that, in as essence, well as the US and UK, exactly yeah. the, the, those those countries. So. What's happened in, in, in a nutshell is uh, Phantom Parrot gathers all the data on, on, on people that the UK authorities want to keep an eye on. In our investigations, Cage's investigations, we believe that um, a bulk of those people are actually Muslim background. Mm. Um, and it's justified using the language and the uh, assumptions of the war on terrorism, i.e. Muslims pose a existential security threat. To, to the UK. So we believe that Phantom Parrot program has been mass profiling the entire Muslim community for the last 20 years. And coming to the documentary, what the documentary attempts to do is shed light on that program through the stories of two people. Uh, one of them is um, Ali Al-Marri. He's a Qatari national who suffered at the hands of the Americans uh, for a very lengthy period, maybe, I think, 13 years, if I recall. And, at Guantanamo? Uh, not in Guantanamo. It was actually on U.S. Um, right. on mainland, US soil. on U.S. soil, right. uh, which is one of the interesting features about his case. He suffered torture there. And the second person is, is me. Um, so my efforts through my organization and some lawyers to seek accountability for the torture that he suffered and how that brought me into the um in into the whole program so basically you became uh, a subject of interest to this particular documentary because of your stand in trying to support ali al-marri 
Yes, yes. That's essentially right. that. Essentially that. And you talk about uh, this this intelligence gathering program, and it sounds like something from you know a Hollywood thriller or some sort of you know it's it's it, it it's borderline fantasy. You're talking about twenty years, twenty years. So since nine eleven, let's just say when this started, and yet. I, and I believe most of who's going to listen to this, have never, ever heard of Phantom Parrot before. That's one of our challenges. And I think that's why this documentary is such an important contribution. It, it will help at least um, educate some of us. Um, even those who are involved in the field, um, it's hard to follow all these things. The issue of mass surveillance has been placed on the agenda by Edward Snowden, and even before him by Julian Assange. And there are there is this awareness that governments are running all these secretive programs, and shockingly, they're doing it against their own citizens. Mm. They're collecting intelligence and profiling and surveilling their own populations. So the UK is no different. Even though there's this awareness, the, the struggle is the culture of people and society has changed over time and people have become very very accustomed to having their devices with them very very accustomed to sharing their data very routinely with various websites various companies various services so the conveniences that that culture brings i think places um people in, in, a, in a sort of a, a conundrum you know how do we uh, protect our privacy uh, assert our rights hold powerful to account accountably is seek more transparency from them instead of the other way around but at the same time how do we enjoy all of the conveniences the freedoms the various services uh, thing things that we've become accustomed to i think the documentary does a great job in actually bringing that but, to light as i mean well. but if, if i may interject here i mean just to emphasize something which i find quite uh, important and concerning at the same time we're not talking here about the kind of data shared amongst, um, uh, you know, uh, huge corporations and entities such as Meta and others that um, uh, seek to target us and bombard us with ads, um, and and you know, we're talking about data that might influence someone's well-being. Yes, absolutely. That's a very important distinction. I think it's it needs to be made from the start. I think from the user end, meaning the consumer end or the ordinary person's end, um, they look the same. They don't really, really, you can't tell the difference, meaning you are the target of surveillance. Um, but from the other side, I think, as you've pointed out really well, the consequences are very, very different. For example, Apple is hoovering up a lot of data about us. Google is doing the same. All the big tech companies are doing the same. The motivation knowingly, very much public knowledge, very knowingly and very systematically. Every single thing that we do on our devices is actively designed to collect data on our movements, on our choices, on our clicks, everything, right? Uh, if you go even further to the Internet of Things, uh, such as, you know, you have Amazon Alexa and similar products, you have Ring door um, services, all of those are connected to the web. All of those are smart also, speakers. All of them are collect, collecting data, right? So we, as a, um, as a, let's say, as a consumer, in this case, um, have kind of become okay with this type of surveillance. 
which is all pervasive. However, as I was saying earlier on, the consequences of that are very different to government surveillance. So when a corporation does all of that, their motive is profit. What they're trying to do is understand the customer and then ultimately shape their behavior and choices so that they buy more, right? When a government is carrying out surveillance, the UK government, for example, is collecting data, using that data in order to uh, monitor that person, ultimately to prosecute them or control them. So the impacts could result in, for example, that data being shared, at Schedule 7 um, powers used to gather the data, that's then shared to, let's say, Home Office. Now, the Home Office has executive powers to deprive people of their passports, has executive powers to deprive people of citizenship without due process. That can be shared. This to... is regardless of the proposed and failed law that was uh, submitted by Priti Patel, the Nation, uh, Nationality and Borders, Borders Act. Is it the same or is, it, is this something that is... It's exactly the same. In fact, it actually entrenches that power. It entrenches it. It doesn't... Um, the only only safeguard that it that it kind of creates is a safeguard for the Home Office, i.e. that law says that the Home Office does not have to send give a notice to a British citizen before they exercise the power. Right? Prior, before this law, they had to write formally to that person. But you know, the way it would happen is that person would go on a holiday, so they're not at home, and they'd write a letter. So in effect, it doesn't really change anything, but it just protects the government, the Home Office, from prosecution, right? So now, coming back to the idea of if that data is shared with other border police, uh, a person who's now been profiled under Schedule 7 can end up in another country and find themselves there being uh, barred from entering or they're being harassed or they're being questioned. So there are all these consequences which a tech company simply cannot have on, on, on a person's life that governments can have. So that distinction is really important. And it's it seems to me that um, when governments feign concern or probably even anger regarding uh, data collection and data sharing, such as we saw a few years ago back in Congress, for instance, when Mark Zuckerberg and others were hauled before um, a Congress committee, that um, you know, legislators are so angry about this happening and asking tough questions and the such. It seems to me that actually governments, I mean, from what you've described, um, have an interest in that kind of practice uh, being widespread, being available, and being institutionalized, meaning covered by law, covered by regulations and the such that are internalized within government. This is not something that the public are privy to. And, and, I mean, these practices are beyond the reach of, you know, laymen like myself or, or many, many others. In fact, most people wouldn't know about this. I mean, there's an inkling that, oh yeah, I mean, our data is being shared but it's being shared just like you said a little um, a while ago that that it's for profit what we don't know is that this is also part of an intelligence gathering scheme um you mean the tech companies are also sharing data with government well that's well, yeah. that's what i'm oh, saying oh, yes, i mean absolutely. despite the fact that governments might appear to be angry with with tech absolutely. companies but yeah. in yeah. actual fact it's not within the government's interest uh, to actually side with 
the nation. Absolutely. I think there's a, you can kind of interpret all of that. Um, one of the interpretations I have is in a Western democratic open society, as people want to think of it, there's a struggle between two centers of power. One is the state center and the other is the corporate center. So this struggle, it doesn't really mm, manifest in other cultures and settings. So, I mean, we can talk about China, for example, in a minute. The surveillance environment there is very, very different. Okay, it's very, very centralized through the state. Whereas in Western democracies, there's a struggle. And, and big tech corporations, they've rapidly gained power through big data. Governments are actually, in comparison, very slow. It's only certain sections, such as the military, such as the intelligence services, they are a little bit cutting edge. Um, so in this struggle, government is trying to also put a check on uh, big tech companies from becoming too powerful, okay? particularly in America, but across the West. So this is one, in, one interpretation, why they're trying to create those safeguards. And ultimately, yes, it's to protect consumers, but it's also there's an interest, all right? Government wants to be the center of power. And if they lose that and corporations take over, then that's very bad for, for government, state control, state power. The other thing is, as you say, uh, again, you know, very kind of, uh, uh, you've identified it really, really accurately, which is governments benefit from that arrangement, okay? By law, all these big tech companies, they've already signed agreements that if uh, a, a court or a police um, authority asks for data on a particular individual, then they are bound to share that data, okay? And they do very, very routinely. Was that they, in response to the fiasco that happened a few years ago when, was it Apple, was it, who was it that refused to uh, unlock? Yeah, there was um, a shooting in, um, I, I forgot the location now, and um, that person who carried out that shooting, in the end, he, he died. So they had, they had access to his iPhone. And there was a big public hoo-ha. Uh, the FBI were asking, you know, we want access to the iPhone, but we can't get in. And then they went to court. Apple was saying, we're never going to let you now, um, it sounded so brilliant, didn't it? Yeah, I think you know, so impressive. We, 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 we really don't know uh, behind the scenes what arrangements, if there are any arrangements. What we know, I think reliably, what we, what we can say is this the Snowden revelations show the inner workings of the national security state. Those were private documents, they were not for public distribution. Everything else, you know, this press release from Apple and FBI saying this and whatever. We don't really know what, what, what the truth is. So what the Snowden documents reveal is that the US government and its partner uh, governments have been carrying out mass surveillance routinely against their own citizens. Why have they been able to get away with it? Because they've sh they're shielded from any transparency and accountability. Another reason is they've always invoked this one clause which silences all debate. And that clause is, we're doing this for national security, okay? So then some people started to question it. When those revelations came out, they started to question, hold on a second, if your national security efforts require you to spy on American citizens, your own people, how does that make sense? If your national security efforts require you to spy on your own allies, like you are spying on Angela Merkel, one of your allies, you are spying on the UN, what they're talking about. How is that to advance national and, security? And where does it stop? Where does it stop, right? So ultimately, those debates were very, very valuable. And we really have to thank Edward Snowden, 
and Julian Assange. I mean, those two individuals, I think they, were, they did a phenomenal public service in order to actually bring this to the attention of the public, the citizens of all these countries. Government is taking away too much power and it's doing it completely in secrecy. That is altering the relationship between the state and the citizen. And the balance of power is now completely transferring to the state. Whereas the state is meant to exist to serve people, it's becoming the other way around. So what I think the documentary does is tries to bring this um, conversation to the fore within the UK context in particular, although there is this American connection because I mentioned Ali al-Mavri was tortured in America. Also, there's the NSA partnership between the UK GCHQ. Yes, yes. Yeah. So there are these connections, but really it's to for UK um, people to realize that their government is also operating these secret mass profiling intelligence gathering exercises and they're justifying it using the argument of national security we or let's say general people the population doesn't see the effects of it so they might assume you know it's not really affecting me therefore i don't really need to be concerned it's affecting that small little segment of brown and black and muslim people so there must be some reason but once um, authorities such as governments or police take on the power in each occasion what happens is they then abuse that power so although they may have justified it to stop terror threats ultimately it becomes entrenched and I think that's why the documentary poses those questions it makes people think like do you want to live in such a society tell me about the documentary uh, when did the idea come about who take, took it on board uh, how long did it take to, to film um, it started around 2017. So I was arrested in 2016 for refusing to give my passwords um, at the border. Here? In here London? In the UK. In the UK. Uh, yeah, uh, Heathrow Airport. And uh, that eventually went to court, um, I think, early part of 2017. And uh, ultimately, there was a finding of guilt against me, even though I protested, um, even though the judge um, affirmed that I'm innocent of any wrongdoing. I'm a person of good character, but it's just the way the law was constructed that she had to find me guilty. So around that period, just before, I think, um, we started to have some conversations with the director of the film. Her name is Kate Stonehill. She's an independent filmmaker. Um, and I think that's really important. That, you know, I think we need to talk about that a little bit as well. How she found out about um, my case was actually through a referral um, of a, another interesting character. Um, you're familiar with him. Uh, he was at one point one of the six people officially designated as extremist in the UK by the Home Office, uh, Dr. Salman Butt. Oh, of course. So there was a Our press release from uh, the Home Office at one point, and as a kind of explanation of who are extremists, they put a list, and, and amongst the names of the people that they listed as officially extremist, Dr. Salman Bhatt was one of them. Well, he challenged that. He went of to court, course. as you know, and, 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 was and alhamdulillah, he was successfully, um, he managed to actually, he's now actually officially the only person who can claim that I'm not an extremist. <laughs> right? So, so, he, 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 so he, he, had, he did a piece of work with Kate um, uh, maybe a couple of years prior, and then he recommended that he, she get in touch with us, and it started from there, really. So she... Um, came along to some of the activities and events that we're doing connected to the case. So I had an appeal and uh, I, I went to the court 
um, high court and then appealed the the uh, conviction all the way to the Supreme Court. So, you know, Kate followed all of that experience. Um, when I went to collect the testimony from Ali al-Marli, the Qatari national that I mentioned, we organized that in a third country. Um, so she was there um, also observing all of that, collecting all of that. Um, so she's been sort of following the story actually all of this time, uh, maybe over a period of about four years, maybe. Um, so it was lengthy and um, part of the reason is, I, I mentioned earlier that she's an independent filmmaker. Yeah. Now that appealed to me and my team because we felt that um, Kate had a vision for the documentary, which was in keeping with my own experience of what I went through. And also it was respectful and she had an attitude of um, letting the subject um, of the documentary just speak, right? And I think she did a tremendous job in, in, in that. And um, our trust in her actually really, really um, was worthwhile. Um, how she presented the stories, not just of myself, in particular Ali and Marley, it was respectful, it was objective, it was fair. And that's difficult to pull off, you know, in today's media landscape, it's difficult to pull off. Being an independent filmmaker gave her that latitude, right? Now, the challenges that came with that was um, she didn't have any funding or any real um, support from, from anybody from the industry, in the beginning at least. So that was a challenge in the entire process. There were moments when we both um, would, you know, uh, you know, we, we would think, you know, we, 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 where is this going? You know, would it really materialize into something, or is it just gonna sort of like slowly, slowly, slowly die or something like that? But Alhamdulillah, um, it, it all worked out eventually. You know, through her, you know, diligent efforts, and uh, she has a team, a production team. Eventually, she built a team. And they were able to secure um, uh, support from the industry with with some quite heavy heavy hitters, you know. So Alhamdulillah, it, it came all, all all came together. Where has it been screened till now? It was premiered at the um, CPH Doc Fest, which is one of the leading documentary film festivals in the world. That was in Denmark. That was in March. Okay. So it sort of like had its launch. And how there. was it received? Mashallah, it was really, really wonderful. I think around 200 people attended and the, the, on the day, the engagement was very, very um, lively. Um, people were interested, some of them were shocked. Um, and then online, we've had a few very good reviews from industry publications. All of it's been very positive so far. So, so from Denmark, um, it had its UK premiere in Sheffield. Um, again, very, very positive response. We've always had um, packed attendance, actually, at each of these events. And then um, from there, I think there was a film festival in Kosovo. And in, in London, there was a screening last week. There's one coming up in Zurich in two weeks' time, a film festival. There's one in Berlin uh, in the following month. And then there's one in Washington. So all of these screenings are, are lined up um, coming up, inshallah. So... I asked the question, I think I know the answer, but has there been any kind of response, any kind of comment from, uh, I don't know, governments, from uh, intelligence sources, from anyone who is relevant to this? So far, no, zero. Um, maybe they just don't know about it. I don't know. I mean, the way the launch is happening is it's going through industry first, so the festival circuits, 
And the idea is hopefully, you know, it will gain some traction there. And eventually, um, perhaps, you know, if the opportunity arises, then there'll be some broadcaster who will take it on. Um, and then there'll be a phase where it will be sort of uh, at the community level, there'll be screenings, more more, more public screenings. So I think um, maybe they just don't know about it, uh, but I'm sure they do. Um, and maybe they're just uh, waiting for, for it to come into the public domain properly. Mm. Mm. And is it likely to come into the public domain? I, I very much hope so. I think it's a very high quality production. Um, it's like if you switch on Netflix and you and you watch something on Al Jazeera, um, it, it, it's a very you know good quality. Is it that kind of standard? yeah, mashallah. I think I think it deserves it for sure. And I do think someone will snap it up uh, at some point. Let's uh, talk more about uh, the state of our collective security or lack thereof under the, uh, th this particular regime. I mean, this started officially uh, after 9-11 because there was, in my view, um, a viable excuse to introduce laws, to add layers of regulation of, uh, and the such. As you say, I mean, under the extremely convincing uh, uh, sort of justification of national security. So, I mean, who wouldn't want to be protected against uh, terrorism? So, of course, people will allow for much of their freedoms, for much of their privacy, for much of their to be taken away and confiscated, never to be returned, by the way, um, because they will feel safer. So, within that kind of system, within that kind of regime, where do we find ourselves today? I mean, you're talking about uh, phantom parrots 20 years ago. Uh, the war on terror was heralded by George W. Bush in, 20, uh, in 2001. Um, so it's been close to a quarter of a century. And the world has been spiraling down this very, very slippery slope into what I would suggest illegality. I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, despite the fact that there are laws that protect these uh, agencies, government um, activities and, and the such, but in, in, in anyone's, any reasonable person's mind, they are illegal acts. I agree with you. Where do we find ourselves today? Yeah, I think um, the Terrorism Act 2000, I was actually signed off in 2000, which is interesting, right? Just so before 9-11. Before 9-11, mm -hmm. okay. But what happened is two big changes happened. So I think the first point to make is that governments um, are always seeking more powers. That's the way it works. And there has to be accountability mechanisms where the population and the citizens which they serve hold government to account. So they don't run away and create a society which is authoritarian, ultimately leading to tyranny. Now. So 2000 was when all of this was passed and um, 2001 was the big change. And the second big change was just the rapid advance of technology. So 2001 gave the uh, justifications and the public argument was one, like just overnight, it was just one completely. As a result of that, what happened, which probably wouldn't have happened prior, is all the necessary checks and balances were just thrown out the window. So to give a comparison, the UK has gone through the troubles, a 30 year period of bombings, killings, struggle, you know, related to um, Irish Republicanism. 
And the UK has a way of tackling and dealing with that threat, right? Um, and one could argue quite efficiently. Quite efficiently. And surely there are, you know, laws and powers and, you know, mechanisms to, to, to absorb and handle that type of threat. So in that sense, it's not new, right? So what changed is because the argument was so uh, one, like completely overnight, the checks and balances which existed in that period even didn't exist in this period. So what should have happened is the Terrorism Act and the various powers that were designed as part of it, showed yourself in just one component. Um, those should have been kept as emergency powers, i.e. temporary measures, and they should have been monitored very, very closely by parliamentarians. And every six months, they should have been reviewed, okay? As happened during the Troubles. Okay, so that check and balance would have prevented this authoritarian drift. Okay, that didn't happen. So instead, you know, there was just law after law, power after power, and each one just tried to do outdo the one that came before until you end up in a situation where I think there's like 15 different pieces of legislation um, and they're constantly adding all in the name of fighting terrorism. Now, the second change, as I mentioned, Technology rapidly changed, okay? So one could imagine very easily in 2000, I mean, the first iPhone was created in 2007, if I'm not mistaken. So prior to that, you're talking about Nokia phones, yeah, which we nowadays call dumb phones, okay? So in the year 2000, when the law was set out, um, uh, and if, if we just take Schedule 7 as an example, um, the idea was we'd be stopping people at the borders, we'd be searching them, We'll be questioning them, okay, which is intrusive, okay. I would argue that, you know, you can't do that unless you suspect them of a crime, okay. But let's just let that slide for a moment. So you'd be searching that person. They'd be carrying some documents, maybe, maybe a briefcase, maybe whatever. Now, fast forward 2007 and then fast forward the social media age, all of that's changed. Now people are carrying laptops, iPads. They're carrying phones, sometimes two they're carrying all sorts of electronic devices, which are essentially surveillance tools in our pockets. Now the same laws are just applied as though nothing changed, okay? So that's what's led us to where we are, right? I mean, there's a host of other reasons, but I think these are two fundamental things that in, in the age of um, digital, like we exist in two realities at the same time, and we cannot separate that. One is the physical reality of the natural world, and the other one is the digital reality. Our existence cannot actually happen without a digital version of our, of our life. So the laws don't recognize that, you see? The laws just treat it as though it's an object that we just confiscate from you. No, it's, as I said uh, during the court case as well, if I give you my password, it is tantamount to me handing over the keys to the front door of my house, and my office, and also probably some of my family members' houses and offices. Why would I do that? How can I do that? Once you've got access to that, you've got access to everything. That's not the intention of the law. But what you're doing is you're abusing that power. But the, you know, you mentioned these two realities. No one can argue with the fact that yes, we do have this physical existence um, with the normal world, as you put it, and then 
the existence online, the virtual world, the digital world, or the digitized world. The thing is that we can more or less control our behavior in the physical world, in the normal world, but you can't really command or take control of your existence on the physical, on the uh, on the digital level, because I mean, those are all you know algorithms. They're they're zeros and ones, and they're 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 things that we don't know how they misconstrue. For instance, the fact that I clicked on this rather than this, um, and and you know, I I'm even you know as I'm talking, I can feel myself being absolutely irrelevant to the current world because we're now talking about AI which is now another thing that we'll need to try to command, to try to absorb and understand and then try to deal with. So the, the, the thing is that I am, in a way, I am uh, judged by the authorities for my digital existence, which I have very little command over. I can't, for instance, I can stop myself speaking for a day. You know, if I've said something wrong, I can say I'm going to shut myself off and not meet anyone and see anyone or talk to anyone for an entire day. But I can't do the same on the physical world. I can't stem or stop my progression on on any level within the on, on the digital world simply because I'm out there. And the way in which all of this is progressing is is beyond my control. So we're talking about something which... Is... You know, we're, we're sort of like living through the era of change, so we don't know how yeah. it will all end up. Yeah, exactly. But right now, there are tensions. There are different forces acting. We're the generation. I'm, I was gripped. I mean, just, uh, I, th this is not to, um, I mean, I don't want to go on a tangent and, and start talking about the digital age and AI and all of this, but, you know, in a way, we can't avert that. We can't avoid that subject. I mean, only a few days ago on the BBC, the news of a, a Spanish town that was gripped by uh, by a scandal where a few schoolboys they plastered the faces of you know their colleagues, their female colleagues, on the bodies of porn actresses and and the such, and they sent sent it virally all around. And you know it's such a cheap but a simple thing to do in today's day and age done by 13 14 year olds and it created that kind of horror you know imagine a parent all of a sudden being exposed to their daughter being you know you know in a, in a way that is absolutely despicable and that's as they say that's the very you know the very well no I wouldn't say positive but very good end of this because this could have uh, an implication on someone's very well-being on someone's very life and as you put it when you're handing over your phone you're not just handing over your phone you're handing over your entire life you know the private photos the private conversations Everything. the contacts with people that you Everything. Know. I mean, in your real existence in, existence in the natural world, if I was to surveil you, spy on you, actually know far, far less about you yeah. than if I was to spy on your digital yeah. existence, yeah. right? We are going through change where we as a people, as human beings, have to contend with that reality, that we're entering a new era of being, Okay, where our being is expressed through two dimensions, you know? I mean, as a Muslim, obviously, I would love to bring into this discussion that actually the spiritual dimension for a Muslim is the core, yeah. and then the natural world, and then the digital world, 
right? And getting that balance right and that priority set correctly. For most people, they don't even realize that what's happening is we're sleepwalking into a new reality in which the digital actually is more powerful than the natural world that we, that we live in. So therefore, if states don't um, play a role where they're actually responsibly handling that, and if instead if they play a role where they pit themselves against um, their own citizens and they start saying, in order for us to actually remain in power and to exercise our authority, we have to actually treat these citizens as people who we have to control, we have to surveil, we have to monitor, we can't trust them, they're irresponsible. You're, you know, it's a really, really, you know, dark image of the future, if, if that's the trajectory. So these debates are happening right now as we speak. We are going through that period where there's tension and different forces acting. The corporates have their justifications. It's profit. Big data is the new oil. So they are actually not going to give that up. Governments, they, we talked about that. And then basically the ordinary guy is getting left out. And what I would like to argue, I mean, you mentioned very correctly that the reality is, you know, in the digital space, we have no control. I mean, I accept that. And I, I would also say that we, we need to, we must um, exert control. We, we must within whatever capacity we can. And there are measures and steps we can take. First and foremost, we need to realize that if we just sleepwalk, we will be the subject of the agendas of various other actors. The corporate organizations will simply see us as another consumer that they want to exploit and get money out of. The governments will just simply see us as uh, subservient, conformist uh, workers that we're producing for the economy. And so long as they're productive in the economy, we're fine. And if they're not, we're going to discipline them. Right? We have all the data to justify it. What we need to do as individuals, as citizens, as Muslims, we need to say um, we're going to take control of our digital life. How? The first thing is we, we assert that every single human being has a personal dignity. Part of that dignity when it comes into the discussion about data and digital life is privacy. Our starting point has to be that every single individual has the right to privacy. If we do not protect that right. And that right is unnegotiable. It's non-negotiable. And no one has a right to encroach on that privacy. No one. Even the authorities, if they want to encroach on that privacy, there has to be some threshold and some uh, requirement that they um, can evidence you know and normally that requirement is that they believe they have evidence that you may be involved in a criminal act right i mean they have to actually properly make that case okay then the court a secondary party which is usually the court should then weigh it up and say okay based on your um you know evidence that you've gathered I give you the permission to now encroach that person's privacy, right? That's like ABC. But that's an ex uh, an, sort of an exception to the rule. And that rule is that privacy is something that is sacrosanct. Yes. No, I'm saying that shouldn't be the starting point. So there shouldn't be an exception. That should be the starting point. And yes, I, I, I mean, an exception can be made if there's a justified reason, right? Which, which I just discussed. Now... That's our start. So if we make that the starting point, then what we should do is measure every single interaction that we have online. Firstly, basic stuff. Okay, I've signed up to 
um, uh, the Google ecosystem on my Android phone, or I'm in the Apple ecosystem. We need to say, am I happy, am I comfortable that Apple staff, employees, managers have access to my emails, my messages, to my photos? Am I comfortable with that? I mean, normally, it's like saying, you know, sometimes I explain it to people. All right, let's take a professional example. Uh, I have a staff meeting tomorrow. It's going to have about 10 people. We're going to be discussing, let's say, a disciplinary matter, a HR matter, or let's say we want to invest some money. You know, these are confidential matters, yeah. right? Am I happy in that meeting to also have sitting around the table an executive from Google, an engineer from Microsoft, uh, uh, somebody from Apple? Am I happy with that? Am I happy that they can read, listen to all of the discussions that I'm having in that meeting? No, I mean, nobody would agree. Like common sense would tell you, no, they don't belong in that meeting. They don't have the right to step into my private space and to talk about uh, and listen to confidential matters that I'm discussing with my colleagues. So how does that translate to the digital space? In the digital, digital space, what we're doing is we are uh, writing all of our minutes, we're recording all of our Zoom calls. The Zoom people, they can watch all of your calls. Your emails are being read by Google employees. So we have to first start from that point. The starting point is, no, privacy is important. It's a God-given right. Nobody can take it from me. And I need to preserve it myself. But they'll argue that if you have nothing to be afraid of, why are you so protective of, um, of your privacy? Wasn't, it's, it's, that, wasn't that the kind of argument that we were constantly facing wrong, whenever it, it's, a, it's, it's the wrong type of question. It's been applied in the wrong context. I'll explain how. It, this is like saying, when I'm sitting in, in my house with my family or just myself in my living room, I should not have any curtains covering my privacy. But you could say, but what do you got to hide? Well, I've got nothing to hide. It's just my privacy. It belongs to me. I have a right to protect what belongs to me. Finished. There, there is nothing to do with criminality. It's a totally bogus argument that um, people who are in the law enforcement agencies and people who are in the in the business of uh, suspicion. It's bogus they, and it's absurd. And most sane people would, would agree. But the thing is that it was so effective in winning over the public who were told that they were under threat, that they should true. be afraid. True. And, and that's the mistake. And, uh, and you've got to give it to those PR strategists because they, they actually won the argument. I, I do feel, sadly, I do feel the argument has almost been lost. Okay. And I, I don't think as a society we're going to succeed unless something really changes. Therefore, what I personally believe and I, I, I encourage others to is whatever you control within your agency, whatever is your domain, you should try to live according to some ethics. And one of those ethics must be the protection of privacy, the preservation of trust. So again, going back to my example of the meeting that you have with your colleagues, we can make changes. Okay. Okay. It will come with a little bit of inconvenience, a little bit, a little bit of like preparation that you have to do. So for example, I can speak as a Apple user. Um, I'll give this as an example that you can make an easy change. Apple has recently introduced a um, service as part of their iCloud and Google has its own uh, equivalent where you can ask Apple to make all of your iCloud content, including your contacts, your calendar, your photos, your emails, everything, end-to-end -end encrypted, which means 
when you from your device if you send an email to the recipient it goes via the iCloud server which is which Apple controls what they're saying is from the point you send it to the point it, re it reaches the recipient and it goes through their server it's encrypted in the in-between points so only the sender and the receiver can uh, send and then open that encrypted message but in between when it travels through the um, Apple servers it's encrypted now we yes we have to trust Apple when they say that okay but it's far better than just allowing our uh, all of our internal and private assuming that anyone out there is someone of ethics and morals that will that's very stop foolish. them from uh, that's a very foolish way of looking at the world and I think you know anybody who's serious and concerned about the principle about the ethic of privacy they would make effort so that would be my advice which is there are some steps and you know maybe uh, in a different place or a different setting we can actually outline here are four or five things you can do today where you can actually enhance your privacy rapidly you know small things like I just mentioned here you just do it once once you've done that it's done from that point onwards all of your photos you take your videos you take it's all end-to-end -end encrypted you can rest assured and you can tell your family that listen anything that you share with me Apple employees are not watching it um, I've said similar when I discovered um, there was a bit of a furore regarding Zoom um, recently Zoom like many other companies what they're doing is they're using their user base to collect the data um, and then use it to train AI models it's an easy way to get lots of lots of data and then develop AI so they made this decision put it in a policy paper some people realized and then they brought it to public attention so what it revealed is that not just I mean there was sort of like the outrage was more about how can you use our data to train AI without our permission that was the outrage but what it revealed as well is that they literally can watch all of your meetings literally all of your meetings on zoom they're sitting in zoom servers and the zoom company and all of its employees can watch all of those meetings right so what can you do so in this case zoom under pressure has now created a uh, a, a option where you can go to the settings and you can switch on end-to-end -end encrypted uh, zoom calls so that that would be what we do that's what we do it also proves that with the right amount of public pressure companies and governments can create the option for a more privacy respecting um, engagement with, the, with with data and with the digital life so there are these small things it requires people to be aware if we sleepwalk into this new existence then it's all over but if we're aware and we're conscious and we make choices deliberately privacy respecting choices there's a lot we can do I fail to recall any um general election in any European or North American so-called democratic uh, countries um, th where the election is run on a manifesto regarding protection of, of public data I, I fail I mean despite the enormity of the impact the significant uh, effect on on everyone's lives yet and and when you talk to people about you know the details of this and what it could mean in terms of people watching or listening in or the such they'd be horrified yet 
Um, I look at, for instance, here in the UK, I mean, we're, you know, a few months away from a general election, probably. And um, the main issues, I'm looking at the top 10, none of them include anything about privacy or about data sharing or about, you know. Well, I think the answer to that, um, of course, you know better than me. Um, For the viewers, the reason is, number one, it doesn't, it's not a good look for if you want to um, attract um, support from big business, no big business will support that platform where they are forced to um, regulate or restrict the amount of data they collect on customers. And number two, the national security industry, which it's become an industry, won't support such a candidate. Um, the police won't support such a candidate. The Home Office and the way it's now structured, assuming um, a lot of data collection. The the civil servants, the the institution. Um, you just, I don't think you can succeed in in this climate because that debate has not been won. The debate is actually being won by the other side. If the public debate was further down and and people, there was more of a fair um, argument from from the from the side of citizens and privacy advocates, then I think we will see. Um, elections and candidates emerging because they'll understand there is a public um, uh, understanding of, uh, awareness of this so that's my own assessment um, um, I'd like to just uh, if possible talk about Ali al Murri. yes um, of course because the film centers really around him and one of the disappointments that we experienced in this whole episode of doing the documentary uh, was actually in relation to his, to him, to his case. I mean, the, the entire film is about Ali al-Marri's suffering at the hands of the Americans, an innocent man who did no crime, nothing, but he was held, I think, 13 years. Um, for about two or three of those years, he was disappeared. So the Americans basically kidnapped didn't him. Didn't admit. Didn't admit that they, they, held, they him. held him. They didn't give access to lawyers for him to speak to lawyers. They didn't have, uh, give access to his family to speak to him. His family thought he was dead. So eventually he emerged somewhere and then they brought him in front of uh, court. They uh, made some wild allegations and then- in What a, in, did they in, charge I mean, The American justice system is so strange. I mean, it sounds so weird, but they make a deal with you, right? So they basically say, listen, we're gonna um, convict you on ABC charges, um, which will result in maybe a 120 year sentence or if you make a deal with us, we'll convict you on a charge only, which will result in 20 years in prison. I mean, that's the kind of justice. It's sort of deal-making justice, okay? It's not about actually presenting evidence in court and then independently, objectively ruling on that case. So what Ali al-Marri was forced to do after being tortured for 13 years, he had to accept a plea deal where he admitted to um, some preparatory acts of violence. Um, As soon as he left and was freed, he completely rejected all of that. And and alhamdulillah, in the documentary, his lawyer is actually one of the most powerful witnesses in the case. So his lawyer, Andy Savage, um, explains how strongly he opposed Ali al-Marri to sign that that plea agreement uh, because he just felt it's Totally is oppressive. he back in Qatar now? Uh, Ali al-Mari is back in Qatar. Um, in the in his case, um, what was the most profound thing, which um, was very very rare, 
in all the cases that we've dealt with as an organization looking at torture, it's very rare to find the, uh, an, an individual or, or, or the actual perpetrators of torture, their actual names, and to find who they are. In his case, we found their names. And those names were written in, in prison logs that the American prison authorities had. They released those logs. I mean, Allahu Alam, was it a mistake? Or, yes, of course, Qadr of Allah. I mean, it was meant to come out. So when we discovered these logs through uh, Ali al-Mari and his lawyer, we uh, decided that this needs accountability and we have to take this to court so that these individuals, the chief amongst them is a man called Ali Sufan. He's a of Lebanese origin, but he's an FBI agent. And there's two other guys. So their names are clearly on the logs. Now, what was disappointing was, number one, it turns out that international law actually um, has these clauses where if the torture is perpetrated by an agent of the state, he's protected, he's immune. So sadly, that route didn't get us anywhere. Okay. Secondly, we um, contacted the Metropolitan Police and we uh, filed a, um, an arrest warrant request um, under the War Crimes Unit of the Metropolitan Police. Um, it's been five, six years. There's no news. All right. Ali Sufan, meanwhile, has visited the UK on numerous occasions. Thirdly, I think this was maybe mm, the most shocking. Like, I think the other bits were kind of like, okay, you know, you know, this is what states do, you know, in the end. Um, but thirdly, um, at the time when um, we collected the testimony of Ali al-Mari on camera to, to, to inform the public, we enlisted, like we coordinated with a number of media organizations, CNN, ITV, The Guardian, um, Zeit, which is a German publication, Volskrant, which is a Dutch publication, uh, maybe there's one or two I can't remember, we coordinated the release of the uh, story of Ali al-Mari, revealing his experience in American custody, talking about all of, all of what he went through, and also his um, allegations against the perpetrators. So everything was going fine and smooth, and uh, the documentary captures all of this, by the way, um, until it came literally like 11th hour when we all agreed we were going to publish. So on the day before, I started getting messages from these media organizations. CNN, I think, was the first one, then ITV followed and everybody else. And they basically were saying, um, listen, um, you know, we've, had, we've got some problems. Our editors or our bosses, they're really happy with the story, but they are not giving us permission to talk about the perpetrator. So we were just shocked. We were thinking, oh, but we, you have the evidence in front of you. It's not as though you are making it up. And that evidence is from the US prison authorities, not from us. It's not just the word of a, a torture survivor. There's corroborating evidence. You've seen it. You've gone through all of it. You're, you've, you've put it through your lawyers as well. Because these kinds of allegations are serious. You know, the, the legal teams would uh, check through everything. But somehow something happened where the media organizations refused to perform their public duty, which is to ask tough questions of authorities, to scrutinize the decisions and actions of governments. In this case, the American government uh, and the FBI agency. So, so essentially the story was published, but with his name redacted, okay? 
So um, we are still hopeful, inshallah, that the quest for justice will inshallah bear fruits. Inshallah. Um, of course, if not in this world, then in the next. But Ali Al Mari, I think, is a, is a, is a exemplary in his resilience and in his uh, desire to get justice. And he 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 told he told me many times, and you know, it's not just about him. All of the other victims of American torture, particularly at the hands of this individual, they deserve justice. And if he succeeds, then they'll also feel that some accountability has happened. So, inshallah, I think the documentary is, again, goes some way uh, towards that, inshallah, and uh, amongst the other things that it does. Jazakallah khairiyah. Jazakumullah Thank you so much.